We could spend an hour on tabs versus spaces if you'd prefer. Tabs. Yeah, definitely tabs. I mean, spaces. no question. But but oh please, <laughs> that's just like a waste of waste of energy. Pre- preserve your knuckles, people. Like you know, you need to use them for a long time. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Rollbar. Move fast and fix things. Resolve errors in minutes and deploy with confidence. Head to Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Request a demo. Get started today. It's loved by developers, trusted by enterprises, and most of all, we use it here at Changelog. Move fast and fix things with Rollbar. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. You are listening to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. We record live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time, and you should join in on the hijinks. It's absolutely free at changelog.com slash community. Hop in our Slack, hit up the JS Party channel. The bigger the live party, the better. If this is your first time listening, make sure you subscribe at changelog.com slash JS Party or wherever you get your podcasts. It's party time, y'all. It's time once again, friends. It's time for JS Party. I'm Jared. I'm your friend, and I'm joined by some of my friends. Nick Nisi joins us today. What's up, Nick? Hoi, hoi. Hoi, hoi. And Amel Hussein is back. What's up, Amel? Hey, everyone. And we are also joined by a special guest, Yanni Goldberg, the curator, creator, and maintainer of the Node Best Practices repo on GitHub. Yanni, thanks for coming on JS Party. Thanks for inviting me. So happy to be here. Yes, we are happy to have you, and we're happy to learn and discuss from you. You have this really cool set of Node best practices, which a lot of these repos on GitHub start off cool, and then they just kind of fall into disrepair or you know non-maintenance. And one thing that's impressed me about this repo is that you've kept it up-to-date and active uh, over time. So give us the lowdown on this, where it came from, why you started it, and... What's going on with this project? Sure. So it all goes back to when I was a .NET developer, like 15 years ago, Microsoft has a team that was called the Patterns and Practices team. They was kind of inspiring everyone how to write code. And the entire .NET community followed their advice. And I kind of admired them. I wanted to be part of the Patterns and Practices tools. This didn't happen, but once I um, switched to Node.js land, there was no, almost no practices and understanding how you build an application. Unlike Java, Ruby have a very strong opinion on um, the application structure. So this was my chance to, to build a patterns and practices of Node.js. I put a lot of effort into it, and uh, to an extent, it worked. Yeah, it's interesting when you have a brand new ecosystem spring out of nowhere and, and go into such a place of use, right? Like it became from very small uh, start, just exploding and used in so many different ways in enterprises and hobbies that there's opportunity, right? In them hills is like, okay, I can be the best practices guy if I just go ahead and, and put the effort in and did you come up with the best practices? Did you find them from other people 
you know, where does the actual content come from? Out of your brain? Partially. It, it was a mix between things that are common knowledge for in other platforms, and you just should just import them into Node.js land. Other stuff needs some adaptation into the Node.js world uh, because Node has some special characteristics and behavior. So some of the stuff needed to be adjusted. And there was also quite a bit opinionated decision to make. Like, what is the right architecture for Node.js? Is it one from the Java world or from the Ruby uh, ecosystem? So it was a mix of different type of contents and decision to make. I guess we'll speak about this uh, very soon. Yeah, I have to say that that makes sense to me that ultimately there's a general set of security best practices. You know, I, I think of that list, what was it? Wasp, I can't even pronounce it. What's that that community that uh, sends out the top 10 threats every year? Mm-hmm. Oh, Wasp? Yes. So there's generally like best practices within security, but I think for me, what I'd love to hear from you on is there are things that are unique to server-side JavaScript being a novel thing. And then also just like the youngness of this ecosystem, as well as the cultural, a lot of the cultural baggage that I think JavaScript developers have around like move fast and break things. I think JavaScript security is like a unique challenge, right? Because I think it's the hardest group of nerds to hurt because ultimately it's also the biggest community, period. And then I think you know, the server side shift, like it, it was very fast and furious, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think like there's this whole swath of, and, and for me, like Node is very much like a Lego, Legoland community, right? Like it's, it's you know, you have to build your own modules and, you know, you create your own storyboard, but there's so many challenges with Node because there aren't like, it's very easy to shoot yourself in the foot, right? Like there aren't like strong conventions there. And, and that's how you see things like uh, the loopback and like, you know, like uh, you know, tools like HappyJS, like, you know, they, they kind of have come in to kind of, I think, fill that need, like the conventions gap. And so like, what have been some challenges for you there? I totally agree, m- mostly about it's being Legoland where everyone has to craft and reinvent sometimes the wheels. I think that in terms of security, there are two things that makes Node.js security more challenging than other platforms. One as you said, I believe, is the maturity. There are not yet enough set of tools to um, address all the concerns. Uh, for, for an example, if you want to limit your process permissions, it's not very easy with Node. By the way, this is one of the selling points of Dino, the so-called uh, Node replacement. We are more secured. And I guess there is a reason why Ryan Dahl, the creator of, this, uh, of Dino, uh, choose security as one of his um, differentiator. The second point is the single thread thing. which we all know, Node.js, at least there is one thread that serve users. And when you have one thread, it's much easier to attack your, your code. Because if this thread is gone, your, at least a big part of your service is gone. So um, this is what makes security in Node.js. Security is always challenging, but in Node.js, it's even a bit more. Mm. So the plan for this episode is we're going to try to treat this in, in three segments, three sections. Now, there's lots of best practices. And there's lots of areas. And full disclosure, Yanni's 
favorite area is testing. In fact, when I said, hey, come talk about node best practices with us, he was like, are you sure? Because I could talk about testing. And I was like, no, I'm sure. But maybe we'll do testing again later. So we might go to a deep dive on testing. We have a lot of testing advocates on the panel. But we're going to start off with writing our code. And then we're going to talk about testing the code a little bit and then also securing the code. So unless we get too far ahead of ourselves in the securing section, let's go through some of the best practices laid out in this guide for how you go about writing your code. As we've stated before, a lot of this stuff is really what I consider, you know, Wild West for a while, cowboy land of like, well, how do you like to do it, right? And over time, these things start to develop and you realize this is worse or this is better and people come to these conventions. So when it comes to writing code, Yanni, what do you have in the best practices or what has the community landed on in terms of project structure, error handling, style, et cetera, for node code? Yes, so I picked some of the, I think, more impactful and important practices for writing code. Um, although I must admit the bullets that, the bullets that has the most traction and flammable discussion was about semicolons or not, brackets, <laughs> but I think that we better focus here on things that are more um, painful and impactful. We could spend an hour on tabs versus spaces if you'd prefer. Tabs. Yeah, definitely tabs. I mean, Spaces. no question. But but oh, please, that's just like a waste of <laughs> waste of energy. Pre preserve your knuckles, people. Like you know, you need to use them for a long time. Um, y Yanni, just just to confirm, when you said uh, the semicolon, are you talking about like ASI? ASI being automatic semicolon insertion. Like, I'm just curious why semicolons play um like into the security story at all. Yeah. So first here, I'm more referring not, not yet to the security part, whether to writing code right. in general. Just coding style. Yeah. Okay, coding style. Sorry, I clearly I'm foaming at the mouth to talk about security. <laughs> She's already in segment three. I am going to unfurl myself and <laughs> l l let's talk about writing code. To semicolon or not to semicolon is definitely like a thing, right? Oh, for sure. That's a thing. Yeah. I was at NPM and we use standard uh, at NPM. And I, it was like the first time I've had to write code without semicolons and it was a big adjustment especially because i'm very familiar with like the traps of asi asi being automatic semicolon insertion so it's like i was always just like am i gonna take down the registry am i gonna like break all the builds like valid no no but, but it was really funny because we could write like highly opinionated and controversial stuff like hey you should all use oracle database and people like okay but if you write, you should use semicolon in the end, those kind of hundreds comments discussions. So right. we learned to run away from these flammable discussions. Anyway, so about writing code, I think that the, the first best practice that I picked is um, distinguishing between what are catastrophic errors versus non-catastrophic errors. Because in a single threaded land, making a decision when to make your thread crash is, is really uh, impactful. There are other thousand users now on the line. If you make the process, if you make the thread crash, then the, um, the damage is, uh, is huge. So when I started with Node.js, the advice was, if you have an unfamiliar error, you should just let the thread crash. Why? It's just safer. You, you don't know what are the implications of the error if, you, if it's not familiar. Maybe you have some zombie, like, critical zombie component, like database connections that is hanging. So better be safe, crash. Okay, this is what I started with. And then when I worked with customers, I always put that line. 
process.exit, if, if the error is unknown, process.exit. And the funny part is that almost everyone, after some times, after weeks, someone commented out this line. Like I, I got back two months later, looked at the GitHub repository, someone deleted this line. And uh, the reality just told us that in most of the time, the errors are not really catastrophic and affecting all the process, but killing a thread uh, is really painful in production for and so many times. So after some times, I adjusted my practice and I suggest go with the balanced approach. If the error comes with, uh, you know, that is originated from a specific request, like a specific HTTP request, it is probably not catastrophic. This is just something that happened during the request. Yes, it's a risk, but staying alive, make the thread stay alive is educated guess. On the other end, if the error happened during a critical phase, like the startup or something regarding to some global object like the database error connection, it's probably catastrophic crash. And this epi medium, uh, based on my experience, works better for um, most of uh, my customers. So is, is this information or guide specific to like server apps as opposed to like, I don't know, command line apps or something? Because there is a lot to, to pass when you exit like with a specific error code, for example, if you want to like pipe that into another process or something for like command line apps. So is this kind of more focused towards server-side apps? Absolutely, because a, a server-side thread probably at, at the moment is serving 1,000 users. So mm-hmm. only to get the exit code to now let down 1,000 users, does, I guess, doesn't make sense. You can just properly log the, the error, get it to the op systems, and stay alive. So. Yeah. So, I mean, this this is really kind of fascinating because I feel like I've had a very similar evolution, except for, I think for me, it ties very much into the logging story, right? Because I think for me, I I really am, I'm a data freak. So I love monitoring and logging and classifying my errors and um, making sure that if there's something new that's out of bounds, like I'm notified right away. Right. Um, And we're able to hop on it. And that's kind of like the triage process. And so I think for me, it's very interesting. Like, I'm not sure I'm fully on board with the like, universally just don't crash, right? Like, ultimately, like things like the DB, if there's like memory issues, or if there's like uh, flushes that you didn't do, like you're gonna, like the system's gonna crash anyway, right? Like, it's gonna crash on its own, whether you you explicitly exit or not. But I think for me, you know, especially during development and testing and staging, like, I don't know, I, I would err on shut like trying to collect as many of those data points and making sure that whatever logger you're using that you have event listeners set up on process exit and crash like so that you can capture that stack in that error like you know what i mean so that you're able to send it somewhere like put it on disk and whatever if you have a log rotate policy or if you're using like a fluent d or something like that that you're you know you're able to kind of capture that that data right so like for me like where does that come into play for you? You know, like the, the logging story and the monitoring story and the triaging, like how, how does that kind of fit into that flow? Because I think for me, without kind of a rubric there, it's very hard to implement any type of universal guideline, right? Like at, at least for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that the ops involvement here, the monitoring, the logging, the, the other side of the error handling, the one that should take some proactive act is, is a, really, a really important piece of the puzzle. This is, by the way, another reason why 
you should not always and blindly crash. Remember, there are people there watching the applications. They might make thoughtful decisions. If you decide to crash based on one error that you have, and then you make the thread crash all the time, congrats, you now have two problems. Mm. <laughs> Very soon we will discuss the next best practice is about metrics and how to visualize your application health. So, uh, mm. Yeah, so, okay, so, so it, it ties in over there. <laughs> I think it makes sense to think of those as, as distinct, and it's like your development practices are allowing for your ops practices to get what they need, right? And that may be still be you. That may still be the same person, but if it's not, it scales well. And so one of those things, Yoni, as we go down the list here, you have extend the built-in error object. you want to tell us more about that? Sure. And I guess it's complementary to the first one. We're building the story here. <laughs> so the idea is that anytime you throw an error, you should throw only in your object that, that inherits from the base JavaScript error and not anything else. There are two groups that I, I believe are doing it wrong. The first one, you know, in JavaScript, you can throw anything. In JavaScript, you can throw an integer, you can throw a Boolean. I guess you can throw uh, an emoji of unicorn. You can throw a party, which is what we do here every Thursday. That's kind of how we handle it. <laughs> 1 p.m. Eastern, Yeah, JavaScript party. Some people think it's an error, but we don't think so. <laughs> At least not the caught one yet. It's a custom error. <laughs> That's right. It's our error, okay? Yeah. So I, I guess it's obvious to, to everyone why, why this is wrong. You lose the stack trace, it's obvious. But the other type of mistake is so popular. And going by this mistake is when you throw the error object of JavaScript. And I see it in many places, and even the Node.js core was doing this for a while. So the idea is that you just include a very long message, and then once you need to handle the error, reason about it, the act, you have to compare with a very, very long string. And if someone just changed a word in this string, then million application in the world breaks because they relied on this, this specific string. Not to mention that many people, it was a funny, funny thing to observe, many people install a, lo a localized version of Node.js. So the error messages change per language. They are localized. Wow. So yeah, at some point, the Node.js core realized it. Maybe they already done it. I don't know. Uh, they, they, they switched to what I propose. And not because of me, by the way. <laughs> the idea is that to include in every error object, some identifier property, a name, a code, something that strongly identify the error. And then it's very easy to, uh, to reason about the error type and... Um, and compare. So if I were to reiterate and just make sure I'm following you, don't throw the standard error, like don't throw the non-custom error, but also don't customize the crap out of your errors. Like have some classifiers for types of errors. So you're, you're, you're suggesting some structure of your error messages, but not like a hierarchy or like extreme unique errors for each circumstance. Is that what you're saying? Or am I not following? I, I think I, I believe that there are two valid practices here. One of them is just inherit from the base error object and add at least one property that identifies the error, like name, code, and then you can you yeah. know, write there a thing like invalid input, payment failed, whatever. Right. The second type of implementation, which is valid, is creating a different class per error type. Then you achieve the same goal. Uh, you can uh, identify the error type quite easily. It's just more verbose and demands more work, but I guess valid as well. Yeah, so it's just, it's just functional versus composition, right? Right. For me, it's very clear when logging and trying to capture errors or any type of logs within your application, 
you know, you really need to kind of have like a standard format. And I think like that's kind of what uh, Yoni is alluding to. Uh, but also for me, there's a very clear core set of things that I, I log for, right? That being like that unique event name, right? Or in this case, unique error name that's like a string that's tied to some constant or enum in my system, you know, as well as like, you know, what service did this come from? You know, what, um, uh, like there's a set of core things you want in every error. And the way I handle for dynamic data, right? Dynamic data being like anything else that I want to capture where the error happened, whether it's arguments, whether it's like additional context or any other data that's contextual beyond the stack trace, which is a standard item. I use a specific key, something like payload or data, and I put everything in that object, right? So, so even the dynamic data has a standard format, right? And you kind of get away from that. Like I 100% relate to your the example that you use around the the string matching and anybody changes that format, all of a sudden everything breaks. It's ridiculous, especially when splunking, you know, people are splunking on crazy string formats. I'm like, Jesus Christ, like just use a data structure that like makes sense, you know? So yeah, I plus a million on that. All right, let's move on to the next one. We have layer your code with N tiers. That means you have to cry the whole time or what's that mean? <laughs> That's a terrible pun. Uh, it says on creating an tier style of architecture. So this has to do with the actual layering and styling of the architecture of the code. And you have best practices on this as well. Yeah, this is about the project structure, project architecture, or practically the folder um, mm -hmm. structure in your application. These type of discussions are always opinionated. And when I started, I thought to myself, do I want to, to get into this? And I decided that yes, because... There, there were no standards at all at Node.js land back then about how do I build application. Mm -hmm. And um, obviously, I wouldn't invent anything new, but my debates were between choosing the heaviest architecture, Java style, like hexagonal, clean, onion. Uh, those are the architectures that have many, many moving parts and um, a lot of interface. And uh, it's re really heavy stuff. I don't want to uh, now elaborate a lot about architecture like hexagonal. The other option was Ruby style architecture like MVC, which was quite popular when Node.js started. Mm -hmm. I believe that Node needs something between the overstructured architectures of Java to the, what I believe are the understructure MVC, something in the middle, some EP medium. The reason, by the way, that I believe that MVC is, is understructured and not powerful enough. I believe it was Uncle Bob who said that MVC is a delivery pattern. It's not a way to, to architect your backend. It says nothing about how you structure your business logic, your data access layer, mm -hmm. your uh, services, facade, access to other services. All of this, by the way, in MVC falls under the word, the, the letter M. Model, yeah. Yeah, it's, everything is a model. Obviously, uh, never, never meant to answer this question. N tier is a great medium between, uh, between having something that is make great separation between the API, the entry point. Let, let me emphasize about what is N tiers. Yeah. N tier architecture simply mean that you have layers. In plain JavaScript, in Node.js, a layer is just a folder. And then as your request, think about some API request flying in. It just goes through, for example, three different uh, layers. The first one is the entry point, like API. 
So you have one folder with only API-related code, only your routes, only thing related to receiving the request. Then your second layer is the business logic or the domain. This is where you apply custom data change, logic, orchestrating if you need to call other services, everything that is, as, it, as the name said, the business logic of your application. And then the third folder, the third tier is the data access. If you have an ORM, this is where it goes to. So you have a very simple and clean separation of concern, but it's also very intuitive. This is also how the request is physically going from API to some logic to our database. So I chose this um, architecture. Um, it's a good medium. And um, what do you think about the reasons that led me to this um, proposal? I have thoughts on this, but I want to hear from Nick and Jared. I'm, I'm, I'm calling it MCD for the record. Mm. Or I should say CMD, Controller <laughs> Model Data mm. Access. Or C, CMDA, how about it's that? The, it's a work in progress. <laughs> model, yeah. I, I mean, hey, you're, you're getting an insight into my brain right now. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's Controller Model Data Access Layer, maybe. Um, that's good. CMDLA. Yeah, control, yeah see, see, CMDLA. I was going to say CMDLA. Let's call it, you know, it, yeah. Nick, what do you think about it? You've got boots on the ground in, in, you know, big node applications. Is this is this a pattern that you've seen? And do you like this idea of these tiers versus a MVC or something even more strict and heavy? Yeah. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Yanni, but I, I, if, I feel like this is kind of the architecture pattern that like a Nest.js application would use if you're familiar with that. That's what I have a lot of experience with lately and, you know, breaking everything up into controllers then are basically like the API endpoints that then have talked to services that have all of the business logic and then going into like, in our case, a type ORM backend to access the data and manipulate that. Absolutely. Yeah. Years later, Nest.js did a very similar thing. I think that what Nest has resembles more than anything else, a kind of end tiers. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like Express also did this really well initially many years ago. I just don't think they did as maybe, I don't want to say good of a job. That's not the right word. Right. What was kind of not as defined was like the kind of separation of concerns between models and data access, right? So I don't think we ever really had a very good early pattern for that in the Node community. It's just like a bunch of conventions like that were not similar across the board between teams. And I come from a Ruby on Rails background back in the day, so I was thick into MVC, and I always thought it made a lot of sense with the problems that Yoni stated that most developers thought that those three words were the only place where you could put your code, and so maybe it was for a lack of structure, which is why the M became it all. Like everything's in the model, everything's in the model. Uh, and then the there's backlash to that, which was the skinny models, fat controllers idiom. Or no, sorry, uh, the controllers got too fat. Anyways, you're supposed to have skinny controller. I don't know, I can't remember, Long too long ago. Yeah, Point yeah was skinny, people, skinny controllers, fat models. That's yeah, because everything was getting shoved into the controllers. And it's like, well, you should shove it into the models. Well, then we ended up with these really fat models. And I never, at, at a personal level, felt the pain, but I saw the pain in so many Rails projects where it was just became unwieldy. And I think it was because there was just not enough buckets laid out, even though, uh, spoiler alert, you can create your own buckets. You don't, you don't have, like you said, this is, it's not about that, but uh, I haven't done end tiers. So I'm very interested in checking out what Nest is up to and 
Are there other projects or open source things or people using this tiered approach where you could say, here's a code base, check it out. Here's what it looks like. No. And this is, this is something that, <laughs> no. that, that, yeah, yeah. Dang I it. mean, this is the sincere answer. And I say, I said, we, we've been asked so many times to provide uh, an example application and I, I just didn't have the time. So right. I, I definitely plan to. Yeah, maybe maybe one of our listeners can help contribute to that. That would be um, really so powerful. Is there is there like an open issue that we can link in the show notes, or should we create one um, so people can chime in? I'm just curious, like where are you tracking that backlog work? The backlog work, you mean of the repository, right? Uh, yes. Oh, 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 these feature requests to kind of like provide an oh. example. Right. So like the node best practices repo would be cool yeah. if it linked out to examples of this in practice. So maybe creating that example would be the first step maybe in the GitHub issues for that repo, or if you have a separate way where the community says, I'm sure there's debates on what, which best practices to add or remove or change. So maybe a place where you could go and say, here are things that need to be done to improve this set of best practices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so f first we do manage all the, the backlog and issues in, in GitHub. And there was a handful of discussion about this. We actually have uh, an example, that, some hidden examples there. It never matured enough that we felt confident enough to share it. But if mm. any of the audience wants to get a quick look into uh, an example that is not finalized, feel free to um, approach in GitHub and I'll be glad to share with you the link. That's awesome. Thanks, Yoni. Um, so just one last question before we kind of wrap this topic. So, you know... I was really, I think what Jared said earlier about like people feeling constrained by these letters, right? These MVC letters, which mm -hmm. were really kind of very, maybe not so fully baked ideas, you know? Or part of the story. Yeah, it was part of the story. It was a suggestion, first try. Um, so I'm just curious, like to, to, a lot of our listeners work on front end applications as well as back end, but like uh, for folks that are, you know, working on progressively thicker clients, right? Is there an end tiers kind of mirror model for browser code that's written in JavaScript, JavaScript or TypeScript? Mm. Well, I, I guess you can structure your, it, it makes sense for everything. I guess you can structure your front-end code with entiers because also in front-end, there are like multiple big concerns, which are good candidates for partitioning the front-end. But as we all saw the, move, the movement in the front-end world, the state thing gets most of the attention. Right. So almost all the frameworks are all about how do I just um, manage the interaction between the state and my UI? And this is why it probably won't get any much popularity if, uh, if you plan on suggesting that uh, to the front-end world. Yeah, I mean, I might be able to actually take a stab on this. I'm, uh, we're, I'm working on a big, I think, proposal for UI re-architecture at work. And so I don't know, maybe there's something that can kind of come out from there. But, but I will say that, you know, I think that the front end community is very much subject to like the Pareto principle, you know, 80-20, right? So I think like 80, oh, that's so funny. It's actually in your notes too. 80%, I think of, of front end apps, like their biggest pain points are state management, right? And I think the, t the remaining 20% still have state management problems, but they, uh, in addition to other things, right? And so I think for me, it's that 20% or 15% of applications at like massive scale, that I would be interested in kind of, I think, codifying. So that's a really good takeaway from this conversation.
This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean, Droplets, Managed Kubernetes, Managed Databases, Spaces, Object Storage, Volume Block Storage, Advanced Networking like Virtual Private Clouds and Cloud Firewalls, Developer Tooling with a Robust API and CLI to make sure you can interact with your infrastructure the way you want to. DigitalOcean is designed for developers and built for businesses. Join over 150,000 businesses that develop, manage, and scale their applications with DigitalOcean. Head to do.co slash changelog to get started with a $100 credit. Again, do.co slash changelog. So we touched on logging in the first segment. We are going to talk more about it now because you have more things to say. Logging, metrics, open it up Yanni for conversation. What is the best practices here? Yeah, so uh, it, it's not coincidentally that many, many of the best practices are, are focused on ops, on operations, on production. I really believe that uh, pro, what I call production-oriented development is something that should be uh, embraced more by development teams. And one of the things that I think um, most projects are not doing enough is emitting metrics. And metrics are meaningful, measurable pieces of information that the application share outside, usually with the ops, production, monitoring uh, guys. And um, this allows to, me- to monitor and measure and alert when certain um, meaningful events happen. And for example, it might be the amount of errors if we know that there is an increase in the error rate in the last 20 minutes, something is probably wrong. It might be the event loop delay in the last one hour. It might be also completely custom business metric, like payment failed. Instead of doing also this, developers mostly rely on logging, which is important, very important. But logging are not good enough for this type of thing because first, there are a big bulk of text. So if I'm as an ops guy, Looking at application and looking at the logs, it's very hard for me to extract what is important. And if I try to, many, what many are doing is trying to scrape some text and extract events based on this. But then if a developer changes just one word, it all breaks. And not only that, usually log, log lines are not measurable. It's not numbers. It's also not documented. Who documents his log statements? It doesn't make sense. Metrics are the solution to this. A few, 10, maybe 30 uh, specific events that are documented by design, whatever framework you're going to use, it's very clear to your ops what your application is going to emit. So it's kind of an interface between the dev and the ops. And uh, practically, it's very easy to do it. As a developer, you just throw a a plain JSON with an identifier. Usually, it's a counter or a specific numerical value. Uh, it has a name, sometimes it has labels. There are many supportive frameworks for this, like Datadog or Prometheus if you're into the Kubernetes era, or CloudWatch if AWS is your thing. It's really easy, it's really powerful for the ops, and yet not enough are doing this. So I think it's an opportunity for many projects to embrace metrics. How do you decide what specifically you want to have metrics around? Like, is there guidelines that you follow for that? Yes. So I'm putting aside infrastructural metrics because it's more about a development show. So the ops don't need us, the developers, to throw infrastructure, like disk space, out of disk space, CPU. There are tools for this. No, no, no need to. Uh, 
So in your code, type of metrics that you want to throw are of two types. One is your platform-specific metrics. Because your ops, you know what I would say first? Your metrics should reflect what is important. What is important to measure and alert on? So usually it's platform-specific measures. Like if you are a Node.js, the ops guy don't know about the event loop and how sensitive it is. So platform-specific in Node.js, it will probably be something like the event loop, the amount, the open file descriptors, usually also the HTTP request behavior, length of an HTTP request, amount of HTTP request, amount of errors, very important. This is one category. And the second one is business metrics, like business or product metrics, stuff like payment failed, really important stuff, payment failed. Wow, we really want to measure this. Mm-hmm. If there is an increase in payment failure, then obviously someone has to, uh, to go online and watch. I think this is, it's, I'm so glad we're talking about this because for me, like, so first of all, like logging and monitoring of any kind has a cost, right? And I think a lot of, I've seen a lot of developers fall into a trap where they over log and then once their application scales, it's like, what's why, why what's going on why are my server bills so high and or like why are things slow mm-hmm. so a understanding that like monitoring and logging have a cost and then making sure that whatever tools you're using to do logging and monitoring meet high performance benchmarks right so like i wouldn't be using bowl for example as a node logger anymore when things like pino P-I-N-O, you know, J-S exists, right? So ultimately, like, it's one of those things where you really, you know, the kind of the maintenance part of this as a developer, I can tell you the way I've kind of handled this is I typically have like an abstraction around my logger. Totally. Right. So I created my logging interface in my language, my class, my code, whatever, my, my set of functions, my module, and, you know, whatever tool I'm using is abstracted away in there. And what that gives me is a lot of flexibility to like, move with the best tools as they become available, right? And as benchmarks improve, like there's no loyalty here, right? The only loyalty is speed when it comes to like monitoring <laughs> and perf. So, um, so, so, so there's that, uh, although Pino has set a really high bar and I think Mateo's only going to be continuing to innovate. I think Mateo Colina, who we should have on the show sometime, by the way, uh, he's going to be, he's going to be on our show pretty soon, the web platform podcast, but um, Mateo has this unique advantage where he's like a, a maintainer of a lot of, popular node libraries like Fastify and Pino, but he's also on the node technical steering committee. So he has this unique advantage where he like is able to leverage his understanding of like the internal workings of node to like do performance optimizations. So I think that's like super cool. But anyways, so getting back to the like decision-making around performance as a cost, you also have to understand that like what you're monitoring and what you're logging also fall into two different categories, right? So there's, like you said, like there's the business intelligence t- type stuff, like new user, like transaction happened. And then there's like metrics around like health and performance, you know, which is like how long are your requests taking, et cetera. And so I think for me, like the management of those two and then deciding on like what to log and how often to log and what ver- verbosity and what your debug path looks like in production, like those are really big decisions. And I still haven't found a way to like codify and organize it so that like I can have a very seamless interaction or seamless set of communication with ops, you know, that's actually doing this monitoring and setting these benchmarks and setting like the bounds, right? Like 
I, do you have any kind of feedback on this? Like who, who's done this well? Like are there tools that you can use? Like I'm thinking of like infrastructure as code, right? Like there's no infrastructure as code equivalent to like fixing this problem and organizing it and codifying it and like making it easy to communicate. Um, the only thing I found that has worked for me in the past is to, like I say, create my own abstractions and centralize my own, like centralize, create my own modules that can at least like limit the points of change, you know? But other than that, I don't know. What's fallen down with that, Amel? Why, I mean, I do that as well, and I find that it's like a really good pattern and it just works. Have you found yeah. limitations with that or you just don't want to do it every time? Or No, no. I just think that Yoni brought up a really good point about your ops team. It's like you, you need to be in communicado with your ops team, right, on this stuff. And so ultimately, like, what's that process? Like, the only thing I can think of is like a manual human process. Yeah. Right. And I just wasn't sure if there was like a programmatic way to do that in a, like in a consistent way. Like, that's all. I, I, I'm trying to over optimize <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm doing here. Well, so. Nick's probably written a robot to talk to his ops teams. Haven't you automated that away, Nick? You don't have to talk to anybody anymore. You just tell yeah. your robots to. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Yanni, you were about to say something before I picked on Nick again. <laughs> no, no, to Amal's point, I think that Amal, you just kind of packed a few great and very useful best practices. First, yeah, always create a wrapper around your logger and anything that is uh, external. And also separate the verbosity of your log entries. So uh, uh, do info-level logs on you know, um, major events, like start of a request, moving to another layer. And anytime we'll write these huge messages with uh, custom variables, yeah, keep it verbose. It's really, I even agree about Matteo Colino, which has a genuine uh, skill for taking things and making them somehow so much faster. Amazing. Um, yeah. And, and one more now to, to kind of uh, combine metrics and logging, although they answer different questions, but many times what I hear from developers is, okay, I understand why metrics answer a different question. It's not about investigating a specific flow. It's about getting a sense of the overall system health now. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to present now new infrastructure and new transport layer. Uh, anyway, I'm doing my alerting on CloudWatch or ELK. So I, don't, I have logging. So great, it's a good point. You can use logging for metrics. My advice then would be, Create a dedicated method for metrics. So like you have logger.log, logger.info, logger. Have logger.metric. And there, mm. have a very specific variable, metric name, metric value. And next time a developer comes to change something, he probably be cautious about changing this line, this, the metrics, because it knows that this specific log usage is a direct contract with the ops. So uh, it's a kind of good, ba good balance between using our convenient tools, the logging, but making them a bit more uh, ops-oriented, shall I mm. call it. Yeah. Makes sense? Yeah, no, that's, that's a really, really good idea. I love that. I think that actually gets me one step further than my process right now. So that's great. And thank you for highlighting that I called out best practices. I pride myself on best practices <laughs> usage. In fact, if I could have my middle name be Amel Best Practices Hussein, I would legally make that change. Just one last point to kind of further drive this automation home. As you can tell, like I'm an optimization nut. You can actually use ASTs or something like that to either have something as part of your pull request check, right? So anytime somebody adds something new or removes something, that's logger.metric. 
you can have a, a Slack channel notification. You can have a backlog ticket that's put for the ops team. Like you can, you can put that into somebody's queue for review, right? So what you're doing is kind of taking away some of that gatekeeping around process change and kind of flipping the switch into like just having a monitoring process for process change. And that, that way, if you need to swoop in, you can. But if you don't need to, like full steam ahead, right? So, and that's something I personally real. I'm embracing that model. Like that's, I just realized I, like I'm in a principal software engineer role right now and I want to enable developers to work quickly, but also with convention and standards. And so that's, I'm using that kind of, methodology to like monitor, but not get in people's way and only get in people's way when I need to, if that makes sense. I love that. That's the robot right there. That's there. It is talking to ops. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) totally. So there you go. Thank you so much. We fixed this problem. We fixed the bug. You're welcome. (laughs) So anything else on writing code best practices? We have a lot to say about security, so we're going to skip right to that unless we will have any more on this topic. Of course, there's more to say, but for this particular podcast. Standout. I just had questions on like standout, standard, you know, versus like there's one more. I can't, can't forget. Standout, standard error, and standard in, but that's the other direction. In. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. in is different. Yeah, thank you. Okay. I don't know. I guess any light to shed there really briefly, <laughs> Yoni. Yeah, so you're referring to the best practice as it is called log to STD out. Right. Yeah, I guess it's kind of a common wisdom for many developers. The idea is that anytime you log, uh, your medium is not a file or a database. It's the STD out, the, the standard output or error. It's, I, I, don't, I don't differentiate now between the two. It's the standard output of the process because... And then at the production, at deployment time, there is someone, maybe you, maybe someone else. You, we always plan for, plan at least in advance that it will be someone else. Could be um, bridge this stream into its convenient log aggregator system. Maybe it's ELK, maybe it's CloudWatch. We don't want to make this a core decision. However, when the most popular logger for Node.js for years, at least until recently, uh, Winston, in Almost all of his examples, they were uh, showing how do you log to a, to a file. And uh, to make it more tangible, if you log to a file in Kubernetes, it's so hard. It's so hard to extract all the files from all the pods and unify them. However, if you do it to STD out, it's, it's just happening. Mm-hmm. It's, again, yeah. it's another point where developers don't think ops in ops way soon enough. Yeah, well, but but there is a nuanced difference between standout and stand error, right? Like, and it has to do with, uh, I think if I remember, like when your application is crashing, right? Like, and or blocking threads. And so, can you maybe just like shed some light there, like briefly? I, it, it's a very important. It's more an advanced topic, but I think it's a, an important nugget for people to digest. Yeah, I, I believe this uh, uh, distinguishment was made for mostly for CLI application. Because in CLI application, you need kind of two feeds. One is what this, the user, the user is the one who prints out the CLI, probably right. an administrator or a power user, what he sees on the screen. And the other, on the other end, what the program prints when it uh, exits or for diagnostics. So there was kind of separation. However, in backend application, which was my, uh, this is the context I used here. In backend application, this distinguished um, doesn't make a lot of, at least, is not very useful. So this is why I didn't differentiate. Yeah. Yeah, if you want to go by the book, STD error is the right the target for... A- well said. Yeah, a lot of times in services, we'll, 
we'll wrap those two up and there's there's no differentiation in where those actual entries go like if you're sending them over to a paper trail or something like that so uh, definitely makes sense on the command line though as you have certain things that you want the person to see regardless of something going wrong like they asked you for an answer and you give them an answer and then perhaps you they ask you for an answer and it's an invalid question and you log that to standard out versus or sorry to standard error versus standard out What up, JS Party people? It's your boy here, Adam Stachowiak, and I have a question for you. Are you having trouble uncovering performance issues in your Node.js apps? If so, check out our friends at Scout APM. That's scoutapm.com slash changelog. Scout is application monitoring that automatically reports key Node.js monitoring metrics, instruments many Node.js libraries automatically, detects easy to miss M plus one queries that sneak into production, plus a ton more. And of course, Scout is easy to install via NPM package. Learn more and get started for free at scoutapm.com slash changelog. No credit cards required. That's scoutapm.com slash changelog. Okay, let's turn our focus over to security because there's so much to say here. And this is a place where many of us know a thing or two, but not everything. And even if we think that we have a good grasp, there's so many ways you can shoot yourself in the foot and accidentally write insecure code or deploy things in an insecure way. And surely there's lots of best practices around that. You have a whole section in the repo on security best practices. So let's pick a few and talk through them. Yanni, what are some globalized best like everyone should know about these don't do this or do this kind of security practices yeah well i try to pick some interesting um, security practices that um, kind of reflect on the complexity of uh, configuring our application um, security the first one is that um, you should hopefully inspect for outdated packages but the important question is how soon should you update your packages? Because um, one common says, believes that, yeah, we should always update as fast as possible, right? We want to get the latest and greatest as soon as they become available. But what we have seen in the industry in the past two years, at least, is that most of the security breaches, the hilarious NPM security breaches, were discovered by the community in I tried to calculate this. It was around 30, maybe 30 days. So if someone waits before updating 30 or 40 days, you're greatly decreasing the chances of you are affecting by some uh, new security breach in NPM. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the uh, infamous event stream incident. Yes, we are. Yeah. Maybe a quick recap on this. But our audience may not be. Yeah, for sure. We we did have a conversation. There's a show about this back in December of 2019 when it happened. Nick, if you recall, I think it was you and I and Faraz talked about event stream. We even had Dominic on, maybe it was on the change log. Anyways, we've covered this topic, but it's been a while and even I don't remember the details. So please do review it for everybody. Yeah, so sh sh shortly, th there is a new, a very, f very popular type of attacks, which are called the supply chain attack. Mm-hmm. And the idea is 
don't try to intrude into someone's productions that's hard and complex. Instead, just uh, socially become a friend of a maintainer, become uh, one of the maintainers of a package, and then you get infinite power. So in an event stream, is one of those very, very um, popular packages. I believe it was downloaded 8 million times a week or a month. Can't you remember? But it's not really maintained anymore. There's no much to add to it. It just works. And at some point, some new maintainer kind of um, show intent to start contributing and got the trust of the core maintainer. And then for a start, he, he, he does a lot of useful stuff. And at some point, he injected a new dependency to the code. Nobody noticed. And this dependency was a very malicious one. I believe it tried to steal some Bitcoin files from the local developers. But the important point here is that it affected, I believe, 8 million people downloaded this package until it was discovered around 30 days later. So those who waited, those who are patient, benefit. So the bottom line here is that keep your code updated, but maybe some kind of grace period before you do that. So I'm so glad that you're bringing this up because I literally, we should put this tweet in the show notes, uh, Jared. Okay. Uh, one of my really good friends who is the former CTO of NPM while, while I was there and uh, literally we were making fun of Dependabot yesterday. Um, we were saying like, if you don't automatically, you know, if you're, you're not updating your repo six times a day via dependent bot, like, can you really call yourself a developer, <laughs> right? So I, uh, and while I was at NPM, one of the things I worked on was like updating the unpublished package feature, right? So we actually gave a little more autonomy to users, like we extended out, we can link to the blog post on that as well. So now you can unpublish packages with a little bit more of a grace period and more like leeway if you meet certain criteria, right? So we just kind of took a first step at like widening that. And there's a lot, like, there's a lot of headache to get that feature out. It's a very sensitive topic, right? Like, once you publish something, in theory, like, the NPM registry is like this immutable thing. I consider it to be immutable. Like, in fact, Isaac, who is the, you know, creator of the CLI, and um, he said that, like, he regrets adding the unpublished feature into the API, right? Because it takes away from the immutability. Mm-hmm. And while I was at NPM, like there's tons of like security packages that get removed from the registry, tons of, you know, if, if something malicious, like we, we remove it, like it's right. So it's, it's gone regardless of who was downloading it or not. And so, you know, it's, I am very much in the favor of being one major release behind for everything. Like, I just think it's, you know, a living on the edge is just too much churn, the bigger your engineering team, right? Like the more you have at stake, you know, so I, for me, that's the rule that I use. I like being one major version behind that gives enough, especially with the NPM ecosystem, like there's enough dependencies on the dependencies, you know, like your dependencies have dependencies and peer dependencies. Like there's just too much interlocking and giving and like the more time you wait, the, the more everything is going to just work, you know, together in a seamless way versus like upgrading your Webpack config and, and or upgrading your Webpack and then all of a sudden, you know, Babel still hasn't caught up or, or they're still fixing bugs, you know, like what, why, why take that cost? Like, I, I think our obsession with like new is something that we need to like acknowledge as a problem and actively mm-hmm. curb in our community. Like it's just unhealthy and it promotes like unsafe code practices as well. Just like Yoni just highlighted with the FS events. Yeah. 
So stay a version behind. I think that's a pretty good practice. I would also Ma major version. Major version. I would also submit limit your dependencies, right? I mean, limit Boom. and scrutinize your dependencies is an actual practical takeaway here because the problem with th this kind of a exploit, right? We talk about the different kinds of exploits. This one, a supply chain exploit, is you are not in that supply chain. You, as a developer, you're just sitting over there minding your own business. You're dependent upon the supply chain. What can I actually do as a person typing into my terminal and my editor to guard myself against this problem? And really, the, a couple of things you can do is stay a version behind or a major version if you're very paranoid, um, at least a patch or a minor version, and limit and scrutinize your dependency because while you didn't write that code, you don't maintain that code, you don't know where that code came from, the buck does stop with you. It's your code once you execute it and run it. So the only thing you can do is limit that attack surface and verify, try to, that you're using dependencies that are reliable and maintained and be aware of what's going on around you, which is difficult to pull off, but necessary in this ecosystem. Jared, you're, you're, you're a man of my heart, <laughs> really, because I can share some, some insight on this. You know, as a, someone who's been a lead, for, lead engineer for a while, like when evaluating new tools and libraries, my personal rubric, which I should probably write a blog post on because I think this is useful to more people, an element of my rubric involves looking at the dependency chain of the tool that I'm like going to install, right? So for example, you look at something like a Lodash module, it's just pure function, no dependency. That gets a high score for me mm -hmm. on like, that's a plus, right? If I look at a module that is like not doing magic rocket science, but it has like 71 dependencies, like I'm not into it, right? Like I would rather find a tool that's like more static and like, even if it's not as well maintained, like I will use that over, you know, on like just um, adding 71 new sub-dependencies into my project, you know? And so ultimately like there is a process and there should be a rubric that you have based on your business needs and goals as a team or as an engineering org when adding new dependencies. And, you know, that rubric should include like how many things as like who else am I getting who else am I getting into bed with or who else am I marrying right. when I npm install safe right because you are just like Jared said you are responsible for maintaining that code whether you like it or not and node modules are absolutely the heaviest objects in the universe so right let me do a shameless not self promotion but self show promotion there's an excellent JS party episode Nick you are on it uh, episode fifty six called we're dependent see. And it's Safia and K-Ball and Chris and Nick. And they discuss at length how they decide, like that rubric, their own personal rubrics that go in deep, when and how to select a third-party dependency. And there's that episode is just filled with wisdom. So I'll submit that to the listeners uh, to go and check that one out. But then also, I feel like this kind of things, this dependency selection process is something that needs to be blogged and like referenced and codified. Yeah, because you do it enough over time, it, it almost becomes intuition. Like I can sense when this is a bad idea, but it's, that's just because I've internalized my own rubric, right? Like I know what to look for, and Amel, you know how to look for what to look for. Over time, you develop this sense of what is a good or bad choice in that regard. But these things can be enumerated and explained and scored, and you could actually have very useful, transferable knowledge that way. Yeah, or hire Yoni, you know, if you have the budget. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Thanks for promoting me, <laughs>
Uh, <laughs> I hope one day to hire you. I'm not kidding. I mean, it's extremely valuable to get like external feedback and on penetration testing and security best practices. It doesn't matter how good of a team you are. Like you have bias, like, you know, mm-hmm. like I have blind spots. We have blind spots collectively and, you know. So that's that's supply chain problems. What about the problems that we introduce uh, in our first party code? Because we have a much more direct relationship with that. And there's things that you can do to avoid that kind of attack, right? There's SQL injection, there's cross-site scripting, there's all sorts of things that can happen right there in the code that you're typing out, Yoni. So what are your best practices around how to handle problematic input from your users that you weren't expecting coming into your Node app? TypeScript. <laughs> no TypeScript this episode. <laughs> Nick, did you, did you just say TypeScript? <laughs> no, never. <laughs> <laughs> Never. <laughs> the ghost of Nick passed. Yeah. So I, so I guess that um, malicious or challenging input is a big topic. But first, I do agree with about TypeScript, but I, I would phrase it in a more generic way. Uh, this was a very important advice in Node.js land three years ago. Now it's almost common wisdom. You should have some layer of, you should have some mechanism of presenting the schema that you are expecting in the request whether it's a TypeScript or a JSON schema or class validator becomes now very popular with net, something that should limit the attack surface. And, uh, you, you know, it's funny. I think that I tried many, many, many times, at least until a year or two ago, to do a very, very simple attack against Node.js application. So you know that there is some post route. Just send uh, a custom JSON with other property. And... A big portion of the big portion of the application just crashed after this because someone was doing that. I expect some property dot other property, but it wasn't there, so there was an uncaught error. And so, yeah, validation is um, obviously one tier, and there are linters that will catch things like SQL injection or ODM injection. One of the interesting stuff is um, once you know that you should get dynamic input from the user. So it's not a structured request with a specific JSON schema. It's kind of, you know, freeform content user type a comment. How do you treat that escaping of this string? Should it happen on the first tier before saving to the database? Should it happen on the, on the upstream when we send back to the user? And um, one of the things that we learned is that this type of escaping should happen on the upstream. In other words, when you return it back to the um, device user that is querying for the information because escaping is platform-specific thing. Uh, You escape differently for browsers. You escape differently for mobile applications. For some platform, you don't know how to escape. So typically, you should save in the database the raw information. Obviously, after you have ensured there's no SQL injection there, and if you use the right ORMs or tools, the wrappers, there shouldn't be an SQL injection. But generally speaking, the raw content should be stored in the database and the, pure, and the sanitizing escaping should happen as the content is served um, back to the user. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. Um, I'm just curious for me, like, I'm always amazed at how, you know, much bias I have um, being a quality and performance and whatever, like, uh, I, I obsessive compulsive live person. Like, I'm amazed that there's just basic stuff that I I consider just like, duh, that not everybody does, right? And like, one of those things for people who write a lot of backend services is like, 
schema validation via a tool like the Open API spec, formerly known as Swagger, and like just how important it is to have that for your requests and responses because you know even like if if, if somebody is um, adding something that you didn't expect or like you know like you, you're able to catch that log that monitor that and have it go through security review cycles or whatever like you can loop back like it's a life cycle event where having those things allows you to have that improved communication flow between DevOps and security, right? And engineering. And so I'm just just curious if you have any thoughts on that. You mean thoughts on like the overall process of um, proofing your security level or Correct. more specific? Well, 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 leveraging tools like Open API spec as well to ensure like there isn't drift on the contract, right? Between requests oh. and responses. Yeah, so um, I'll start with the Open API thing. So I'm sure Nick will be pleasant and already aware that uh, there is a great movement in the Node.js ecosystem toward more structured uh, things like TypeScript and uh, Nest. With Nest.js, now it's much, much easier to introduce open API and get upfront validation of the um, open API spec. Um, Specifically, we will probably discuss it in the testing session, but there are also very neat testing tools that allows you to check up front whether your, if it, during your test, one of your requests violates the API spec, the Swagger, then it detects it automatically, even if your code didn't detect it and let it flow by, the test will discover it based on the network uh, traffic. I would also mention the move to GraphQL as a very popular transport. It's all going toward uh, getting that structure that we need. I would even argue that kind of um, attacking using some surprising input would become a, a bit more difficult for attacker now due to all of this. Um, like the hardening of schemas and validation, yeah. like built-in validation. Yeah, I, I agree. Mm -hmm. I, I, I feel like for me, the, the, the industry industry here being like library authors and ORM developers and or, you know, the services world, like we're heading into more, like stronger defaults, right? Better defaults out of the box, right? And so like give power users flexibility, but also give novices less of a chance to shoot themselves in the foot. So mm. yeah, it seems like we're heading, we're heading in the right direction. I think another way that we could move there together faster, better, stronger is to collaborate more. One of the things that I see inside our ecosystem is this ethos of like the indie dev with a thousand NPM packages, right? Like one person, many packages. And that's amazing. And those people are amazing, but what can be more secure and maintained and sustainable is many devs working together on less packages, right? Because now we're bringing our collective knowledge and even inside the security research field, there are people with, there are verticals inside of information security, right? There's people with this particular niche expertise and they can bring a different eye on a security question than somebody else, like somebody who understands cryptography inside and out versus somebody who understands databases inside and out and all the way that a database can be compromised. And so more people working together on less projects, which really comes into things like frameworks versus libraries, right? Teaming up on a framework has a lot of advantages. And one of those advantages is 
all of us looking at one code base versus me looking at thousands of little code bases. So that's just an idea I'll throw out there. No, that's, that's, that's such a good point. We should vlog about that or we should do a show about that, uh, Jared. Seriously, it's such a, such a good um, show. Uh, maybe we can have a panel of framework authors and talk about how like the collective makes them better. And yeah. I, I think of Next as a really good example here because, you know, I think that like they've done a lot to kind of have those good defaults, right? So you don't have to like worry about performance and all these other things because there's like, they've, they, there's good rails for you so you don't go off the rails, right? Right. So just just really quickly, uh, Yoni, I, I wanted to ask you um, specifically for folks that are writing a lot of front end code. What are some common things that you see as like security faux pas that start in the front end and affect backends? Like um, it commonly, I'm just curious. Like, are there, you know, whether it's escaping CSS, HTML, JavaScript, or like I'm just how how can folks who are writing front end code make less work for backend security make less work interesting less work yeah yeah so just before answering that i want to relate to something very interesting that gerard said and i think that gerard's idea and i'm getting back your response tamal at a second what, what you said i think is, is, is a really strategic point in node.js now and it can be generalized to everything not only security it used to mm. be and i see it many times i'm now building this Lego puzzle from many, many pieces. And I have to make, I'm overwhelmed by the amount of decisions and architectural stuff that I have to make decision on. The quality of every, deci every decision is, is, is diminishing. Uh, but now that we're starting to see mature framework like Nest.js, then not only security will become um, this pattern of many people uh, looking at one code base, will be very beneficial, not only related to security, everything, performance, um, features, uh, structure. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Chromium is a very good example of that. Chromium, formerly Blink, formerly WebKit or whatever, like, I don't know, maybe not formerly Blink, but like formerly WebKit, right? So like, it's like a more than a million person hours, I think of engineering time has collectively gone into making a that browser rendering engine and all, you know, it is not something where like, like nobody's going to write a new browser, right? Like folks like Brave forked and like added their flavor of features to that, but no, no, no one's going to put in the work and Brave also like they, they, they're constantly pulling from master, right? Like they're keeping up with Chromium and they mm -hmm. pay, they, they pay the price for that. But I'm, I'm just saying that like, that is a very good example of, open source projects where lots and lots of people are working on one thing and collectively are able to like make, make it the best. Right. Mm -hmm. So wrapping up the conversation of what front enders can do. Ultimately, I will say that your back end has to be secure. The front end you cannot trust. Somebody could throw away your front end and send you whatever input they want via a proxy, via a an HTTP, you know, request creator curl. But there are things that front-enders can do to help out. And one of those things I'll just throw out there is that they can validate inputs on their user's behalf in the front-end. That will not stop the malicious user, but it will stop what most of us hit most of the time is users just using our product in ways that we did not expect and creating malformed inputs and submitting them via forms, which can definitely accidentally either uh, hack your system. Yeah, you can probably accidentally hack somebody, but you can definitely DDoS or DOS somebody by causing their back end to crash. Yanni, any other thoughts from you on 
things front enders can do, or Nick as well, you do a lot of front ends and back ends. So surely you run into these issues where the front enders can help out the node side of the, of the fence. From my side, just to re first to reiterate what you just said, I mean, there shouldn't be any trust between the back end and the front end in most of the time. So I don't see a, a practical way where the front end can actually uh, secure things, uh, help the back end, uh, maybe in realizing patterns. But it's, there, there are two different teams, at least from security perspective. One of the challenges, it's not the, the front end to blame, but one of the movements that is causing is um, triggering now more challenges to the backend is the what I call the backendless pattern. But we've seen a lot of demand now that the front end will be the core thing with most of the code where most of the innovation and changes happen. And the backend is kind of a much more generic thing that much that rarely change. Mm -hmm. You can see stuff like uh, uh, for example, AWS AppSync or GraphQL. GraphQL is kind of a thing. Hey, backend, give me a very, very flexible schema. I don't want to ask any time for a new API route. And I'll just, in my front end, can now get much more power. But then on the back end, you have to implement a much more generic and um, dangerous uh, code. So, for example, now if using REST, for example, I could limit and say, hey, you can only query for this entity using these fields. Now with GraphQL, the user kind of can traverse and explore my database or at least my data provider in a very freeform style. Of course, that we have to limit this and there are tools, but this need to create a very generic layer for the front end imposes many security challenges. If I should choose one thing to blame the front end for, <laughs> it would be this one. Wait, wait, what's the gener generic layer? Why does the generic layer cause this issue if, if ultimately there's no trust to begin with? Like, why, why, why does it even, like, ultimately, like, the backend is going to always validate its inputs and, and sanitize and do whatever. Like, there's no trust. So why, why would the front end cause any more burden in this regard? You're providing a larger surface area. You're requiring a larger oh, surface area. surface area. I understand. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. Got it. Thank you. Yeah. And in plain words, now if I have four database tables, and I used to know that if you approach this route, you just get data from this table querying by two fields. Now, using a single endpoint, because GraphQL have a single, uh, is a single endpoint, you can query something that I don't really predict from, my entire from all of my tables using some kind of relations. Of course, that we have tools to limit this, and we absolutely need to limit this, mm -hmm. but the, the entire idea of getting you so much flexibility is challenging. It's a bigger challenge, absolutely. Well, one thing that was a challenge was fitting all of this amazing content into one episode of JS Party. You may be wondering, what about testing? You're not talking about testing. Well, we're punting on testing. We're going to bring Yanni back here soon, and we'll have a show on testing because it is a huge topic. In fact, maybe even a mini-series will be coming your way soon. Holler at us if you're interested in the topic of testing. Holler at us if you don't want to hear about testing because uh, you have to eat your veggies, but maybe we'll mix them in with some other sweets as well. I don't know. This has been an awesome show. I've learned a lot, and I hope you all have too. Yanni, thanks so much for creating this repo, for maintaining it. Of course, the links to Node Best Practices is in the show notes. Hop in there, give it a star, bookmark it so you can reference it, and hop into the issues and help out. Surely, best practices change, they evolve, 
This is one person's thoughts uh, melded with many people and his experiences. So as we get more people looking at it, more people contributing, we can really round it out and have a, a great reference for the entire community. Mm -hmm. Thanks for joining me, guys. Any final thoughts from the panel? Where can people find you on the interwebs, Yoni? And how can they connect with you and help you? <laughs> yeah, so if it's related to the Node.js best practice repositories, and by the way, I have, I have also a JavaScript testing best practices repo, then uh, I'll really be glad if you approach me there and uh, it helps. There is a lot of learning while you write and think together about this stuff. And in overall, Twitter or the common, common social medias, uh, you're welcome to approach. I'm a very nice guy, by the way. It was a pleasure. Uh, quick promotion, we are publishing Docker, Docker and Node.js best practices probably next week. Cool. Uh, so um, yeah, I'll be glad if you um, pay a visit. And again, I hope to be here again. It was a real pleasure being here with you guys. Awesome. Yeah, we appreciate Ani. Amel, thanks for hanging. Nick, a pleasure as always. That's our show. We'll talk to you again next week. Did you hear? We are launching a membership program. It's called Changelog++ and we think it'll be super cool. Join the club for 10 bucks a month or $100 a year. And if you move fast, you can get in for just six bucks a month or $60 a year. That discount ends on September 1st. So join today to support our work, get closer to the metal and make the ads disappear. Learn more at changelaw.com slash plus plus. Once again, that's changelaw.com slash plus plus. JS Party is brought to you by amazing sponsors. Thanks again to Fastly, Linode and Rollbar for their continued support. And our beats are produced by the one and only Breakmaster Cylinder. That's all for now. We'll talk to you again next week. Clap your hands, everybody, if you got what it takes. I'm Curtis Blow, and I want you to know that these are the words. We'll come back on testing code for its own episode, and we just continue on writing code, and then go to test, go straight to securing code for a second group. I, I like that idea better. I think securing code and writing code are a better pair Tandem. than than yeah, yeah. But I think testing code could be its own show, and it deserves to be its own show. Totally, like, you know what I mean. So yeah, totally. I, I'm, I think that's a good idea. I mean, it could be its own series because there's so oh, much for to sure. talk about. Yeah, testing. like multi-part. We, we could we could do like a, like a series on testing. Yeah, like the most boring month in JS Party <laughs> history. What are you talking about? <laughs> this is a, veg it's a vegetable. I am uh, all about my vegetables, okay? I don't eat enough vegetables in real life, but I sure as hell eat a lot of intellectual vegetables. You know um, you're on the JS Party podcast, right? Like, you know, we play games and we, we debate things and uh, know, we sing I know, songs. I know. <laughs> I know, but I'm just, I just testing like doesn't get enough no. love. And I'm a testing nerd, by the way. So full disclosure, like big testing. I'm protesting and I've tested for many years. Yeah, no, protesting is different, different than being a testing fanatic <laughs> okay I, I never said i was testing fanatic i was just telling you that i am protesting okay you know? yeah. okay that's but i'm also protesting too much testing talk Ooh, see what it did there yeah well you just have to be sneaky with it right just like you have to hide vegetables that's right you gotta work kids, it in that's why i said the whole series on food. testing is like we'll lose my, most of yeah. our audience but if we sneak it yeah. in every episode then we're just yeah. giving them what they need you know you figured right, out my right. typescript model yeah <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, we're we're, we're oh, blending man. the we're bl- blending the broccoli into the chicken nuggets We've been on to you about TypeScript, <laughs> Nick. You're not fooling anybody. <laughs>